Easter is upon us, and it's Palm Sunday, and here's the thing. Uh, over the last six or seven weeks, we've been going through an introductory series here at Praxis uh, around our mission and vision and values, and we called that Discover Praxis, and it's been super good just to once again kind of come around who we are as a community with the hope just to lead other people through that, and I think it's been uh, important for us as people come into the community just to say, hey, this is who we are um, and this is the things that we kind of feel like God is leading us to as a community. The thing with today is it's a bit of an off week. So we have like no series. Next week is Easter. And I've been like wrestling all week long with what to do. Um, it's one of those weeks where I kind of wrote two sermons, maybe three, and it was like, choose your own adventure the last couple days. Some of you are like, you're a freak. I know. It's just my mind, is, my mind and my heart has been going around some of the freedom of what today brings. And so <laughs> I'm just going to talk. Is that all right? You okay? You're like, I came for this. No, it'll be, it'll be okay. Um, I'll say this. If you have a Bible and you want to turn with me, turn to Acts chapter 2. We'll start in Acts chapter 2, and really this is what I feel like is my contribution to charismatic Pentecostal theology. I think actually what we're going to talk about this morning, as people of the Spirit, so if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, we believe, comes and empowers us, and I think this will be helpful for us in our current moment as a church. And so if you just want to follow along, I do believe God has some good stuff to say to us this morning. In context, you're in your Bible in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus, after his death, burial, and resurrection, shows up to his disciples, and he's doing all sorts of beautiful things among them, and then he says he's going to leave them. And I know if you've been around kind of flannel board Christianity, and this is your thing, like me, I grew up in the church, you just kind of read over it like, oh yeah, Jesus, we know Jesus ascended to heaven, and that was kind of his plan. But you got to think what these disciples are going through when Jesus says, listen, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm going to leave my spirit for you. What must have been going on in their minds and in their hearts? The Messiah dies. They basically all abandon him outside of the ladies. Where are my ladies at? Come on, somebody. Um, woman, such an important part of this resurrection story. And then he comes back, shows himself to them. And then once again, he says, listen, I'm out of here. I'm going to leave you my spirit. And so in Acts chapter one, we get this picture that Jesus literally ascends to heaven and says to his disciples, I want you to wait for the promise. This, this idea of the Greek word promise in Acts one is this, it kind of feels like this announcement, the interpretation of it is this announcement that is going to come, this experience that's going to come and change the world. And I'm just big on the reality that what the Spirit does among the church very much intersects with culture. And you have all sorts of churches and all sorts of communities that approach this in different ways. Some communities in the past over church history have kind of secluded themselves and hidden. Other communities have immersed themselves so much into culture that over time it seems like uh, not only the distinctive of what it means to become a Christian, but the counter-cultural way of living is lost and it gets muddy. And I think some of us have experienced that. And yet the tension is, is here, I think, and throughout the book of Acts, we see a significant call to live out what the Spirit does within the church. And I think it happens here in the way God intersects with culture. I'll just say this. If you read the Bible, God in his timing seems to over and over inter inter intersect 
his most transformational moments in history with critical cultural moments in the life of his people. Over and over, it's like these two things intersect, cultural moments within the life of God's people and the work of the Spirit. Here's the thing. I, I don't hear a lot of people talking about this, but just think with me for a second. When did Jesus die? Passover. It's not a mistake that Jesus is together eating a meal with his followers before he goes to his death. It's not like everybody was just in Jerusalem by accident. No, no, no. The Spirit, the Spirit of God, is moving and working and intersecting with important cultural moments at the time. And so Jesus tells his disciples after his resurrection to wait, to go to a room in Jerusalem. And it's funny because a lot of us that have grown up in the church probably think that Pentecost is just kind of a Christian thing, not realizing that Pentecost, just like Passover, was a festival in which the entire Jewish community would ascend on Jerusalem as pilgrims and they would come to the city to celebrate. Penta, it means 50, 50 days after um, Passover was this celebration of Pentecost, celebrating uh, the law that was given to Israel. And so they're not only celebrating the exodus and coming out of slavery under Pharaoh with Passover every year, but now once again, the spirit is intersecting with something they've been doing over and over. Pentecost is not, or Pentecostal, is not something like a Christian thing as much as it was a Jewish traditional thing. And so over and over, God in his timing is intersecting in the lives of his people. And it just says to me that God is not distant or far. He cares about his family, his community, and he works among them. And so Jesus in Acts chapter 1 says, listen, I want you to go and I want you to wait for this promise. And then it happens. Acts chapter 2 opens. It bursts open with this beautiful picture of the disciples waiting and leaning and, and, and yearning for the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes. And it doesn't come in our really clean Western European kind of religious way. There's tongues of fire. There's some what if you read it at first can kind of seem like some really weird stuff happening here, but there's something beautiful underneath it all that I think is happening. So many people want to kind of point to the weird stuff as a pattern that some, as something that has to happen over and over, but I actually think there's something deeper here. Then it says this, Luke writes in Acts 2, starting at verse 5, he says this, now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one had heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all, of, uh, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own language? Let me just stop there. This is the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. People are buzzing in the streets of Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit comes on the disciples and do you catch what happens here? They begin to speak in languages, but it's actually in languages that all of these Jews from different parts of the world are beginning to understand in their own tongue. That the Spirit is trying to now, through the people of God, communicate something to the people. Actually, Luke says here, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia... Phygia, you know, all these great places that, you know, we say really well. They, they were visitors from Rome there, Cretans and Arabs. And they're all saying, man, we hear these people in this room declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. 
Amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? And actually, if you go on to read, they kind of accuse, some people even accuse these disciples of being drunk, and they're like, it's nine in the morning, right? Now, that may, you, can still happen, but you know what I'm saying? Like, London, Ontario can still happen, but this picture of like, what is going on with these people in this particular story? While so many people drill down on some of the manifestations and the things that happened in that moment, I think one of the things we have to look at is this idea of language. They're hearing the wonders of God, the good news of Jesus the Messiah in their native language. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. Guys, something is happening here. And it's deeply tied to what the entire narrative is leading us to. If you remember in Genesis, things get so bad in the early chapters of Genesis that even after the flood, the Hebrews always were immersing themselves in this story that by Genesis chapter 10, it's getting so bad and humans have turned their heart away from God so much that the picture is they're building a tower towards the heavens. Not for God's glory. You remember, in the garden, humans are created to flourish and to create and to build for God's glory. And now humans have turned it really against God and they're building a tower towards the heavens for their own glory. So does anybody know what God does? He messes with their language. The unity in Genesis 11 we get is that everybody's speaking the same tongue. And um, this is divisive in a sense because they're coming against God. So one of the things we get a picture of just in the story is that Yahweh comes down and he actually confuses their languages, languages and disperses them throughout the earth. Now what's happening at Pentecost is actually the great reversal. Babylon and the Tower of Babel was marked by this dispersion and confusion in their language. And now there's all sorts of languages going on, but there's one common message. Do you catch it? Pentecost is way more than just getting like goosebumps and experiencing God. I'm I'm all for that, you know, like experiencing God in deep and beautiful ways. But there's actually something deeper that we need to grab onto. And one of the things we need to see is this is the great reversal. Through language, the kingdom of God is now being advanced because these people are hearing the wonders of God in their own native tongue. Nod your head if you're with me. You with me? This is like... This is amazing what is happening here. I think actually more beautiful than we could ever imagine. And so again, there's this intersection between what the Spirit is doing in the church and culture. Now, culture is interesting because it can be muddy, even the definition of culture. But I put it like this, and a guy named Andy Crouch, I think, says it well when he says, culture is what we make of the world. So in a sense, culture is what orders our creativity. It's a structure where... Creation can happen. It brings our creativity into order. And one person, I think, put it best when he said, as humans, we make sense of the world by making something of the world. All of us, using our hands, our hearts, our minds. The great sociologist Peter Berger, he says, every human society is an enterprise of world building. And we do this. Just, I mean, we're the church that you could actually look at on a city, right? Like, how cool is this? Humans do their thing as they uh, build and they create. And one of the things we have to catch on to, I don't want to get too like heady and nerdy on you, but I think it helps in this whole discussion. The world we live in is not just natural, it's cultural, right? So we have, yes, natural things all around us, but what humans do is they take those natural things and they put it to work and they create culture. So when a baby's born, they're not born just into creation, 
but they're born into a culture, right? Think about my own kids. They're not just born into a world with trees and rivers and the sun and the moon, though that's beautiful. They've also been born into a world with brick homes and roads to get from point A to B, from point A to point B, a society that values things like learning and education. My kids go to an amazing school that teaches them, right? They live in a world where there's societal law. Come on, somebody, right? Are you with me? And things that keep them out of trouble, hopefully. We're praying for them as they get older. And they're born into a world with really good music and art and really bad music, like country music that Heather puts on in our car. I'm just joking. No, I'm not joking, actually. I'm serious. But good on you if you love it, right? We're, they're born into a world. Some of you are like, what? Like, what's it called? Boots and hearts or whatever? Heather's just like... Boots and, is that what it is? Boots and Hearts, the big festival? You're from Barrie, you know this, isn't Barrie? Yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm offending people, they're going to leave, I'm sorry, but it's, it's all, but what do I listen to? I listen to worship music, right? I listen to like long lectures in worship music, so it is what it is. They're born into a world of professional sports, good coffee and bad coffee, and they're born into a world with a particular language. How about it, eh? Right? Yeah? Like Canadians, right? A particular way of communicating with each other. And so I just think we need to, I think that discussion is really important. We just don't live in a natural world. We live in a world where there's cultures being created all over the place. I mean, I see this all the time. It's crazy to me. So if you know my in-laws, they live in Sarnia on a beach town just outside of Sarnia. And it's like heaven on earth where they live. And then, it's funny, and it is what it is. You drive 15 minutes over a bridge into the United States of America, and it's like, it's it's, you drive 15 minutes and it's a different world, right? Like more than just cheap gas and beer, it's like a completely different culture. Every time I go over that border, there's like an angst within me that I need to buy a gun and, an, uh, and a Ford F-150. Anybody with me when you get to Port Huron? Put on some camo, eat some carbs, right? Anybody? Where do we love to go, Heather? What's the place? Olive Garden, just the bread at Olive Garden, I'm telling you. You drive 15, you drive 15, 10, 15 minutes, and your politics, your urban planning, and your priorities completely change. And so the fact is, what we're living in here, and what we're going to see as we kind of comb through the scriptures a little bit, is we don't just live in a natural world. Culture is not optional. It defies the horizons of the possible and the impossible in very concrete, tangible ways. And it's inescapable. People say, oh, I'm, not, I'm not influenced by culture. There's a culture all around you that makes you who you are. So humans, from the very beginning, take wheat from the field and they make bread, and grapes from the vine, and they ferment it over time, and they make wine, and they make art and music and games and entertainment all working together to make culture. And I think the point in all of this is that every culture has a particular narrative, Every culture around the world has a particular narrative or story it's telling and living by. I'll put it like this. Every culture has a melody that it's singing to. And you may not realize it. Sometimes it takes people, and I know for me it takes writers and contemplative people to point things out. But every culture has a tune to it. And every culture has a language. So with all this in mind, we have to ask the question, what happens at Pentecost? Because the church is pretty divided on this. Like, you know, charismatic people will point to the signs and the wonders and God's miracles and everything that's kind of coming together by the Spirit. And I think that stuff is actually legit. Um, but what actually happens? 
I think some writers have talked about this idea that the church now in its moment as the spirit is poured out becomes like this prophethood. And I know that word can scare some people because maybe you've been to meetings or churches where it's like the prophet is here and he's going to tell us what I, I get. I get the baggage that comes with that. But I do think there's an idea of the church being now the prophethood of God, these speakers, these people that proclaim. A, a guy named Roger Strawn said, I think he puts it best when he says this. He says, the promises of Pentecost compel us to conclude it is vocational. That is, it baptizes and empowers the company or community of God's people to witness as prophets about the arrival of the Messiah and the new age which his arrival has inaugurated. Beautiful. That one of the things the Spirit does is it it compels the church now as a collective community to be these prophets, to be these speakers of God and his kingdom that has arrived and is now on the scene. A guy named James K.A. Smith, who you know I've been very shaped by, I think puts it even better. Listen to this quote and what he says. James K.A. Smith uh, is a professor at Calvin College, and he puts it like this. When Peter raises his voice, it is to offer an explanation, an account of the phenomena that are swirling around them. His bold interpretation is actually, listen to this, his bold interpretation at Pentecost is actually a counterinterpretation. The mockers, the people in the streets, had already offered an interpretation. This phenomenon, speaking in tongues, which we see in this episode, were attributed to drunkenness. But Peter courageously offers a different interpretation, an outlandish and surprising one, to be sure, which only heightens the boldness that such an interpretive stand required. Peter's interpretation hinges on verse 16. This is that. In other words, what you're seeing is actually the fulfillment of a promise spoken to Joel, that a day would come when God's spirit would be poured out so lavishly and with such extravagance that it would erase old distinctions, oh my goodness, distinctions, yes, that word, of class and gender, and so you should come up here. You want to trade spaces, anybody? I don't know, it's okay. Some of you are like, maybe. Um, and so right there at Pentecost, we already see something we have come to associate, associate with postmodernism, a conflict of interpretations. That's a really academic way of saying this. Every culture has a dominant narrative. You get on a plane and you fly somewhere. It doesn't matter. This is not just about Western culture. This is everywhere. Every culture has a dominant narrative, a story that's embodied in culture. And what the Spirit of God does, and what we see at Pentecost, is it empowers Jesus' followers to bring a counter-narrative, a different, a counter-interpretation with reality. Does this make sense? You with me? Every culture has a narrative. What the Spirit does within the community is bring a counter-narrative or a counter-interpretation that actually brings reality. They were declaring the wonders of God in our own language, the crowd says. And I don't hear a lot of people talking about this, about not only just the intersection of culture and the church and the Spirit, but we pull so much from Pentecost, and I think this is actually missed. You know, I believe we're invited by the Holy Spirit to speak the language of the culture, but to bring a counter-interpretation to that culture's reality. This is actually what the, nobody's talking about this. This is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit builds within us as the community of Jesus to 
bear and bring counter-narratives to the, the song that our culture is singing in its moment. And so, how the Holy Spirit led the church is something I think we need to look at. And I think this is actually true, and one of the reasons why I think this is true is because of what we see in the book of Acts. It appears to me that when you read to the book of Acts, the apostles are these people that go into particular cultures and they bring counter-narratives to the narrative of the day. And do we have a couple minutes? Do we have a couple minutes? I just want to show you that like what springs out of Pentecost actually legitimately happens in the narrative of the book of Acts. And so if you know, this guy named Paul, the apostle Paul, he was like a third culture kid because one, he was Hebrew, he was Jewish. Two, he held Greco-Roman citizenship, which was like an inn in the Greco-Roman world. And he spoke Koine Greek, so he spoke the language of the day. And God saves Paul in incredible ways, and he goes on these missionary journeys. And I actually think Paul is actually a case study in exactly this. Every culture has a narrative. What Jesus' followers do is they come with a better story. Every, every culture is singing a song, but the Jesus community and the apostles, and Paul did this in Acts, comes with a better song. And so what I want to do really quickly is just show you how this actually unfolds. Is this okay? Are we okay? So if you flip, if you have a Bible, to Acts chapter 16, Acts 16, 17, and 18 is part of Paul's second missionary journey. And he goes throughout the ancient Mesopotamian cities and in Greece and in, we're going to see in Athens, and he begins to go. And it's actually quite interesting what happens. And so I've asked a few people actually to read the text because I'm boring, all right? And I just want you to listen in, lean in. They're going to read, and I want to show you what Paul actually does here that springs out of this idea of the Spirit moving. Go for it, Mary. Beauty. So this is a story. The Spirit actually, it says in Luke, and he records this, that the Spirit actually redirects Paul, and they end up in this city named Philippi. Now, lots going on here. One being, they're down by the river. Here's, here's how non-Jewish Philippi is. It's a Roman colony, 
And Philippi was known as like Little Rome. Like if you went to Philippi, you would see and know that Philippi was known as Little Rome. Everywhere you looked were pictures of Caesar and statues of Caesar. They wanted to model this little town of Philippi exactly after Rome. And what's really interesting in this picture is it's so like, so non-Jewish that they don't even have a synagogue. How do we know? Well, these people get together. Paul gets some people together around a river and they have like, it's like mobile synagogue. It's like Praxis Church. They just go wherever they go to building and places. And we know that they're having synagogue around the water because they needed it for their water and water rituals and their prayer. And out of this, Paul starts this little synagogue here and um, kind of reflection time and people come to Jesus and there's this woman named Lydia who actually comes to know Jesus through Paul's ministry there. And if you know anything, and this is why even with the whole women in ministry thing, like the whole back of the church in Philippi was built on this, the back of this woman named Lydia who basically funded the church. Come on, ladies, where are you? Are, are you here? Come on, somebody. This is such good news. And through this, the Spirit makes alive what was dead, makes new this church, and now this little colony of Rome was beginning to experience an outbreak of the kingdom of God and people were coming to Jesus through Lydia in this ministry. Now here's the thing. In Philippi, we hear terms that Paul says that are counter-narratives to the, to the idea and understanding of what makes the world tick in Philippi. Because if you know the common phrase in the Roman world, and especially in little Rome, in Philippi, would have been this phrase, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord was something that literally you had to declare. You had to bow your knee as a Roman citizen and declare with your mouth that Caesar was Lord. They also said things like, Caesar is the divine son of God. And if you know the line of Caesars from Augustus on, through Julius Caesar and the story, that as Caesars were kind of brought into power, they were literally, literally worshipped as divine beings. As a Roman citizen in Philippi, little Rome, you would say things like Caesar is Lord or Caesar is the Son of God. Now think about that. Christian kid, flannel board, I heard all the time Jesus is Lord and I just nodded my head. Like, okay, yeah, Jesus is Lord. I believe it. But think about the weight of the statement that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is the Son of God in a culture that already says, no, no, this is, th these are attributes of Caesar. Do you feel like Paul is like dropping the mic here? This is counter-narrative stuff. The narrative in Philippi through this whole story with Lydia is that Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the Son of God. The counter-narrative that the Spirit brings through Paul's work is that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is the Son of God. Every time you hear when somebody says, Jesus is Lord, and you're like, amen, brother, amen, sister, just keep in your mind that this is totally flying in the face of the powers and the authorities. Are you with me? This is not in a vacuum. Jesus is Lord because that is a counterstatement to Caesar is Lord. And as I learned this, and as I began to hear this afresh, oh, it was like something subversive now is happening as the Spirit works. It is on like Donkey Kong, friends. There is a better story, a better narrative, a better worldview that is placed on the existing worldview, and it's that Jesus is Lord. And maybe that for you has lost power a little bit because you just, we just say it all the time. No, 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 friends. When we declare this statement that Jesus is Lord, it flies in the face of everything. Anybody out there? Anybody with me? Then you flip one page, Acts chapter 17, if I'm not making my point. Very next chapter, 
Is that you, Curdy? You're reading this? He's like, yeah, uh, 17, Acts 17, uh, 16 to 34, yeah. We good with that? Oh, beauty, you got the mic. All right, so Paul goes from Philippi, and now he ends up in a place called Athens, and this is what it says. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection. They said, what's this battle trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You're saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you're very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw you in many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who is uh, who, who this is by raising he proved him. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. Beauty. That's that would stop there. That's perfect. No, it's so good. Thank you. So good. I'm not cutting you off. Just because you stumbled. I stumbled too. It's all good. We're all, we're all brothers here. It's all good. Um, great job. Top drawer reading. It's good. Athens. So he goes from Philippi to Athens. Athens here, you hear it if you read the text. I know we're reading a bit of Bible in church. Is that okay? We all right with that? Little, little public reading of God's word, which I think is really important. Uh, Athens was the heart of philosophy. Uh, there's a place called the Aeropagus, which was a meeting place on the northwest hill of the city, across from the Acropolis, and it's there where sophistication and intellect, Greek philosophy, everything was kind of on discourse. And so what does Paul do? As a third culture kid, he's Jewish, deeply schooled in Judaism, he's a Roman citizen, he speaks Greek, what does he do? He goes and he philosophizes. Is that a word? It is today, okay? And listen, guys, what does he do? He doesn't blast into Athens and start speaking in tongues. He speaks the language of the culture, and he speaks it in light of God's work in the world. One commentator says this, rooted in Old Testament ideas, it appealed to the Greek philosophers by interacting with their thought, even quoting their own writers in a well-informed, respectful way. And this is what Paul does. He goes into this place, he begins to talk with them, he starts with creation, 
Here's something for you. He doesn't say the name of Jesus. This could be a whole other side sermon, but obviously Paul is pretty geeked up and convinced that Jesus is the way and the counter-narrative, but he's careful. He begins to actually instead, through Yahweh, through the lens of Yahweh, quote their own poets. So have you heard this? In him we live and move and have our being. Have you heard this before? Any 80s, 80s and 90s kids? In him we live and move and have our being. Any, any other kids? No, no other Pentecostal kids. I'm still in counseling for my childhood. Kev Carino, you remember that song? That's like on top 10 and back in the 80s. Some of you are like, I am so thankful I did not grow up in this. It is what it is. We think that's a Christian thing. You know what Paul was doing? You know who wrote that? That was actually, that was a hymn to Zeus by Epitomes of Crete. Then he says this line, for we are his offspring. And we go, oh yeah, we're just like the family of God. We're the offspring of God. But this was actually a poem in Greek philosophy by the, the Stoic poet Aratus. So it's crazy to me that Paul goes in very peacefully by the Spirit begins to speak with them, talk with them, and the Holy Spirit empowers Paul to meet the people where they are, but with a better story. Oh, you have your poets. Paul has a better story. The narrative in Athens is this. We're going to worship anything and everything. Actually, when you read the story, I don't, I don't know if you, uh, Curdy actually read it there, but they actually have an altar to an unknown God. That's how many, like, you just worshiped everything and anything. Anything and everything became a God, so much so that there was an altar to an unknown God. We worship anything and everything. This is the tune, the melody, the sound, the song in Athens. This is what they were attuned to. And Paul comes very gently with a better story, and that story is Jesus is the source of everything. Jesus is the source of everything. And you may think it stops there, but it doesn't. If you flip one more time to Acts 19, we're going to read quick, I promise. We will be done, I promise. Mark's going to read Acts 19, 23 through 41. Paul moves from Philippi to Athens, now to this hub city called Ephesus with all sorts of things going on, and this is how the story goes. But before he got away, a huge ruckus occurred over what was now being referred to as the way. A certain silversmith, Demetrius, conducted a brisk trade in the manufacture of shrines to the goddess Artemis, employing a number of artisans in his business. He rounded up his workers and others similarly employed and said, Men, you well know that uh, we have a good thing going here. And you've seen how Paul has barged in and discredited what we're doing by telling people that there's no such thing as a God made with hands. A lot of people are going along with him, not only here in Ephesus, but uh, all through Asia province. Not only is our little business in danger of falling apart, but the temple of our famous goddess Artemis will certainly end up in a pile of rubble as her glorious reputation fades to nothing. And this is so mere local. This is no mere local fact. The whole world worships uh, our Artemis. That set them in off in a frenzy. They ran into the street yelling, Great Artemis of the Ephesians, Great Artemis of the Ephesians. They put the whole city in an uproar, stampeding into the stadium and grabbing two of Paul's associates on the way, the Macedonians, Gaius, and Aristarchus. Aristarchus. Paul wanted to go in too, but disciples wouldn't let him. Prominent religious leaders in the city who had become friendly uh, to Paul concurred, by no means go near that mob. Some were yelling one thing, some another. 
Most of them had no idea what was going on or why they were there. As the Jews pushed Alexander to the front to gain control, different fac factions clamored to get him on the other side. But he brushed them off and quieted the mob with an impressive sweep in his, of his arms. But the moment he opened his mouth and they knew he was a Jew, they shouted him down. Great Artemis of the Ephesians, great Artemis of the Ephesians. On and on and on for over two hours. Finally, the town clerk got the, the mob quieted down and said, Fellow citizens, is there anyone, anyone anywhere who doesn't know uh, that our dear city of Ephesus is protected with glorious Artemis and her sacred stone image that fell straight out of heaven? Since this is beyond contradiction, you had better, you had better get a hold of yourself. This is a conduct unworthy of Artemis. These men we dragged in, in here have done nothing to harm either our temple or our goddess. So if Demetrius and his guild of artisans have a complaint, they, t they can take it to the court and make all the accusations they want. If anything else is bothering you, bring it, to, bring it to the regularly scheduled town meeting and let it be settled there. There is no excuse for what's happened today. We're putting our city in serious danger. Rome, remember, does not look kindly on rioters. With that, he sent them home. Beauty. Some serious reading. Thank you, friends, that read. I appreciate that. So, Ath oh, so Philippi, Athens, and then Ephesus. Paul goes into Ephesus. He rents the Hall of Tyrannus, this kind of secular space. It says for a couple years, he just basically talked to people about Jesus and the kingdom. And what happened was people started to turn their hearts to God and follow him. So much so that the entire economy of the city flipped on its head. If you, if you caught there, I know sometimes we're just like jumping right into a letter, but what Mark was reading there I think is really important because what happened is there was uh, an economy around this god or goddess, her name was Artemis. Her temple in Ephesus, and it was a female cult, her temple in, in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the world at the time. People would come from all over, and typically what they would do is they would worship Artemis by sleeping with the temple prostitutes in Ephesus. Just crazy, crazy stuff going on all around the story of Artemis. And Paul comes in, and what would happen is you would go to this temple, and you would worship in certain ways, and there would be people that would make like, it was like going to Disney World, you know, like they have... I don't know, Pluto dolls and stuff that they're selling, you know, parents with me, you know, like Mickey Mouse dolls. But instead, you'd come to Artemis and you'd get an engraved, like, wood figure of the goddess Artemis. But what happened is people started to turn towards God and the whole economy was flipping up and it was messing with people and so much so that the entire city goes into a riot because a better story had come than simply the worship of Artemis. And if you, you catch it in that actual reading, like there's riots and people are mad with Paul and, and this kingdom that has come now through the church. And so the narrative in Ephesus was great as Artemis. Like, we worship Artemis. Not only do we worship in certain kind of crazy ways, but the whole economy of the city is based around this God. And yet, Paul comes with a counter-narrative. And I, you heard it clear here. There is no one good but Jesus. There is no one good but Jesus. Great as Artemis. No, 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 no. There's no one good but Jesus. And so I hope, friends, that you'll just simply, I hope your eyes are opened a little bit, that the way that the Holy Spirit worked in and through cultures and helped people that were far from God come towards him was by the community of Jesus and especially the apostles going and engaging with cultural influencers, 
philosophers, poets, entertainers, and public space. This is how God works. And if you know, this is the story of what we want to become. Here's the thing. I'll just say it very clearly. Speaking in tongues for my Pentecostal charismatic friends is great. I actually, Paul builds a case that not only for our personal lives, I think is that available, but even in the gathering, if it needs to happen, tongues and interpretation, the important thing is that there's clarity amongst the community and interpretation should happen. That's why it doesn't happen here a lot because we would just typically speak in English here. And when words need to come to this community, it's typically done in English. Not that we're not open to that. That happens. But for many of you, you know that a lot of the times it just misses the mark. And you've been, if you've been around, you know that. So speaking in tongues is great. I, honestly, I speak in tongues, I believe, as something that is personal in my walk with God. And we can talk, we've talked about that in the gifts of the Spirit. But here's the question. What do we do with people who can speak in tongues but can't speak the gospel into the language of the culture. That's what I think this confronts us with. What do we do with people who can like speak in tongues and the gifts of the Spirit are active and alive, but can't, because the Spirit actually leads us into speaking the language of the culture in a way that draws people to God. The way the Spirit works within us, and I believe for Praxis Church, for, I look out at this community and the influence in many of your vocations and jobs, the way the Spirit is going to work within us is by using us to bring a better story to bear on our city. You following me? Like wherever you walk, wherever you go, we have this beautiful story that needs to be drawn out of us by the Spirit. And we do this collectively as a community, and I think we do it as individuals as well. Now, some of you are thinking, well, I mean, what does this mean for us? Because, like, there's, we've got to land the plane here. Time is adjourned almost. We need to come to the tables and worship for a couple minutes. But I get it. it you, you ask the question, like, what, what is the story that our city is telling? Well, just two really quick, and I, I won't be long, but two. One, what do we do when this, the, the primary narrative, the song that our city is singing is one around autonomy or authenticity, right? So we've... We're living in a culture right now that is completely individual, and you feel it at, not just in the church, but on every level. And so the thing that our city is calling out of us is like anti-authority, autonomy, authenticity, I'm my true self, the way I feel is the way I act. And that's a particular narrative and a story and a song that the city is singing. And then we come along and say that we're actually created in the, the, the counter narrative to that is we're created in the image of God, created for God and for each other. That actually, we're actually created not for autonomy, but we're created for God and for each other. I mean, we could talk, that could be a whole sermon series on its own. And honestly, we feel this in the church. The one thing, the primary thing I wish every Christian knew is that what we're experiencing and even what you read in the Bible is more about us as a community than it is about you. So I, the one thing I, I always want to tell people, the, the, if the one thing I could communicate to every Christian is the yous that you read in the Bible are actually, for the most part, like 90% are y'alls. Make sense? So we pick it up and read it for me. God has a great plan for me. It's not, I mean, God has a plan for you, but actually it's first for Israel then it's for us, it's a y'all, it's for the community of Jesus, and then certainly God has a plan for you and me as individuals, but that's not how it works. And so one of the ways that this 
kind of counter-narrative comes to bear is by us telling the world we're created for each other. It's not about this individual, beautiful life that God wants to build just in me. It's actually about the church embodying what God is doing in the world. Or, well, and this is just another one, we, there's tons of things that are at the heart of our own culture, but I'll say this. This is probably another primary one. We don't need God because we have stuff. We don't need God because we got stuff, y'all. Y'all, you like that? That's pretty good, eh? All I'll say with this, you know, the counter-narrative, I'll just pose a question with this one. Uh, how's this going for us? How's this one going for us? We don't need God because we have stuff. I mean, addiction is on the rise, abuse. I don't know if you turned on your TV recently, but I just think maybe just a little bit politics are divided and thought is divided. Mental illness is on the rise, and there's a number of reasons for this. We don't need God, eh? I just think we have a better story. We have a better tune. We have a better song to tell the world. And I think one of the things is bringing that counter-narrative to bear and posing these questions. And I believe this is what the Spirit does. It did it through Paul. And I hope, brothers and sisters, that it would do it through us. So my hope, my prayer, is that we would bring counter-interpretations to the stories around us. This is what I believe one of the things it means to be filled with the Spirit. People can quarrel about all sorts of little theological things in the book of Acts. My thing is, is if we're not speaking to the culture and we're not bringing the better, beautiful story of Jesus to bear on our city and in our world, then we've, we've missed it. We can have spiritual gifts going on all around us, and I'm for those things. You know that. But if this is not happening, if we are not these counter-interpreters, if we are not this explaining community of the wonders and the beauty of God around us, then we're missing the point. And here's the thing. We're seeing this all around us. I'm so thankful. But I actually think this is just, man, as we talked through Discover Praxis and had this one week in between everything, I felt like we need to drill down on this. God has called us to, to, to counter-proclaim the narratives in our world. And I just pray by the Spirit we'd be able to do this. You with me? You with me?